Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and this is A Public Affair. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Brian Wynn, who is an assistant professor at... CAC School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, where he is a family planning fellowship program director. He is also a practicing OBGYN and the founder of the Emerge Lab, which stands for Expanding Male Engagement in Reproductive and Gender Equity. Dr. Wynn describes himself as an advocate for gender equity or as as an advocate for women's health and a voice for men's reproductive responsibility. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wynn. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Happy to be here. Um, appreciate you bringing me on. Uh, I feel we've we've been talking about reproductive rights and con- contraceptive and abortion a lot over the last few weeks. The entire month of August was kind of de- dedicated to intersection to the intersection of reproductive rights and things like disability and things like uh, what it means to be a young person right now. And you are one of the first people we've gotten to talk to about these issues who identifies as a man. Um, so so thank you. Thank you for being here and allowing us to, to explore this conversation with you. Um, my first question is, is really why is it important that men and people who cannot experience pregnancy per, per personally advocate for abortion rights and access? That's a really great question. And I would say that one of the most important reasons um, for men uh, and people who cannot experience pregnancy personally to advocate for abortion um, is the acknowledgement that it is an issue that affects everyone. Um, It is not just a woman's issue. um, And we can no longer, um, you know, narrate it as such. when we have, um, you know, pregnancies, even uh, just abortion aside, right? Uh, it is not just a woman's issue. It is certainly uh, a couple's issue, right? The paternal DNA um, provides part of the genetics of the pregnancy. And then paternal behaviors also impact the health of the pregnancy as well. Um, and then decisions um, um, all, uh, you know, impact the future outcome of the pregnancy as well as, um, even child like child outcomes too. So um, when we um, make it just a woman's issue, that's really uh, concerning, uh, concerning president. So that's why I'm really um, excited to talk to you more about um, why it's important for men to know about this. I think it's an interesting thing to frame it as, you know, Dr. Wen, we, we talk about abortion, we talk about reproduction and pregnancy as women's issues. Um, I asked a group of students once, like, raise your hands if you've ever experienced a birth. And nobody raised their hands. And it was really interesting because I was like, OK, raise your hand if you were not born. Um, and and, you know, students were like, oh, yeah, I was I was born like I like my birth counts as a birth that I've experienced. But I think it's interesting to frame it as a women's issue in part because whether it's a women's issue or not, the majority of people who have made decisions about reproductive health care and rights are men. Um, men have, have been up empowered and have been the authority um, on, on the kind of health care women have access to. So I, I think it's it's an interesting framing to say, hey, no, men, men need to be more involved. How can men support folks who do experience pregnancy without centering themselves, Dr. Wynn? Yeah, well, actually, before I answer that, um, you brought up a really salient point about, uh, you know, men being in power. And I always tell people that 80 percent of Congress is, uh, you know, men. And how can men be legislating women's lives um, if they are not sensitized to what women go through? And if they're not, uh, in your example, right, if they're not aware of the fact that they were birthed um, and aware of the the burdens of their mothers or the burdens of their wives, um, when uh, they bear children. So these are all things that 
uh, have to be present in the minds of uh, people who are legislating who happen to be male. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of that. Um, that being said, you know, how can men support folks who experience pregnancy without centering themselves? Um, it comes down to an awareness of their own privilege. And, um, you know, if you believe in uh, the gender gap, um, which you should, um, you should be aware that, uh, you know, men are privileged in many different uh, aspects of life, uh, whether that comes from just, uh, you know, familial structure or um, societal structure, finances, like if, if you follow celebrity media, people are talking about how actors and actresses uh, have pay differentials. But when you, uh, when you accept all of that uh, and acknowledge that men already, uh, you know, live in a state of privilege, um, then it's much easier to be humble um, when um, talking about, um, you know, women's rights as a man. That's so to be a little more specific about that, I guess, um, you know, what we could, what, what, what we could do is uh, always approach one's statements with a little bit of doubt, right? Um, heaven forbid you don't want to be mansplaining things. Thank you so much for speaking to that, Dr. Wen. And Dr. Brian Wen, I want to go back to the other question I was asking, because I do think it's really important as we include men in this conversation about reproductive rights. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that there's there's more reasons to stand up against injustice than this might impact me too. Um, and I think there is a temptation for men to center themselves, center their stories, center the times where they felt like they, you know, benefited from abortion, benefited from contraceptive, benefited from the reproductive rights of a female partner or a partner who could experience pregnancy. Um, and so how do men join this conversation without making it about themselves? I think, you know, just as unhealthy as it is to have, you know, 80 percent of Congress be men, um, you know, I, I guess I, I would whether the conversation is pro-choice or pro-life, um, if the conversation is dominated by men, that's a problem. So how do you have men show up for this conversation without dominating it, without centering themselves? Uh, that's a complex question, and there are so many ways to answer it. Um, and, um, you know, first of all, I would say that, uh, you know, coming into the work with uh, a full understanding of your intention, if your intention is to support women, uh, then your language should, uh, you know, reflect that, right? So when you're telling your story, um, and it's appropriate to tell your own stories because that's what you know, um, but to be able to recognize the perspective of your female listeners, your audience, uh, and the female partners who um, you might be, you might, you might have had experience with, um, how is your speech uh, benefiting them, right? And that's the intention that comes into it. Um, and then speaking to the privilege standpoint, uh, understanding that when you have a platform, that that platform could be shared. Um, and that's really um, like a, that's really a, a nod to knowing when to step down and when to share power. There are so many more men who are pro-life, if you look at kind of statistics and data, then there are women who are pro-life. And and I think one of the things is, is that men in politics who are pro-life are, are particularly visible, um, especially now given kind of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And if you're just now joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about men's roles in advocating for reproductive justice with Dr. Brian Wen, founder of Ex of expanding male engagement in reproductive and gender equity, also known as the Emerge Lab. <clears throat> I think it's, uh, it's a, a, a complicated thing for us to kind of have the, the conversation about how men fit into this conversation, the role men should play in this conversation. But pro-life men have been really visible and really vocal for a long time. And I wonder um, what it would look like for pro-choice men to be just as visible, just as vocal as, as, as pro-life men have been. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I guess there are a couple of, uh, of points in your question here. Uh, you know, number one about the um, the prevalence of pro-life men uh, and how they're able to speak about um, 
abortion. And one of the things that that makes me think about is uh, how it's very easy to talk about abortion in the abstract uh, and to bring morals uh, into discussions about, abor uh, about abortion, uh, whereby, you know, this is right, this is wrong, or uh, this is life and this is not. Um, but what that does in speaking about it in such a black and white manner is it undermines um, the gray area. And what we know is that life is a lot more complex than that. And the unfortunate part is that a lot of men who are in uh, these positions of power are not exposed to these life experiences and stories that women typically are. Um, you know, what I, you know, what we're actually seeing now, uh, unfortunately, um, after and the, you know, uh, the uptick in abortion restrictions is that we're seeing all these nuances about uh, the management of abortion that a lot of legislators were never um, aware of, right? So, uh, you know, in cases of miscarriage, in cases of, uh, you know, threatened abortion, incomplete abortion, um, you know, when we outlaw abortion, what does that do? And what we find is that women suffer from it. Uh, and only now are we beginning to see uh, some legislators um, recognize that it's not as black and white uh, and you can't apply, um, you know, a moral, um, you know, hierarchy to um, the reasons why people need abortions. So um, something that I do um, find problematic is the, uh, is the abstraction that some men can um, kind of step away from, um, which is, a function of them not experiencing menstruation, not experiencing childbirth, um, and not owning uh, an understanding of how dangerous it can be to uh, be an individual who has a uterus. Thank you so much for for speaking to that. And I do think there's this incredible disconnect that that you know has kind of dictated the reality of this question, this conversation. But I do want to say that I think one of the reasons that pro-choice men are less likely to speak up with, than pro-life men is I think a lot of times pro-choice men think this is an issue that I should be like handing the mic to the women in my life. I should be uplifting the voices of women. I shouldn't necessarily be out there shouting from the rooftops that I'm pro-choice um, because I don't want to center myself and I don't want the attention to be on me. And I think right now, I think a lot of folks are starting to realize like we really do need everybody who is pro-choice and we really do need pro-choice men who believe in the rights of folks who can who can become pregnant. Um, to speak up. If you're one of those folks and you want to speak up today on the air, you can join this conversation with questions or comments by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. And today we're talking about men's roles in advocating for reproductive justice with Dr. Brian Wynn, founder of Expanding Male Engagement in Reproductive and Gender Equity, also known as the Emerge Lab. I want to talk a little bit about what men who say abortion erases their voices and their choices. Um, you know, what 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 do you say to those folks? What do you say to men who say, wait, I feel like I should have a say in whether or not my partner gets an abortion. I feel like I should have a say in whether or not my partner carries a pregnancy to term. Um, what do you what do you say to men who think that it takes two people to make a baby and uh, both people should be involved in any decisions, you know, regarding said baby? Yeah, you know, as an OBGYN, that's how I answer the question, right? Clinically, uh, ultimately, the pregnancy happens in the woman's body, and it has the most risks uh, to her. And so, uh, you know, for those reasons by themselves, uh, the final choice should always be the woman's. Uh, that being said, I do like to foster healthy communication between couples um, to better understand, you know, what are their what are their intents here. Um, you know, we I even in my line of work and because of my research, I do get. Um, you know, messages and emails from, uh, you know, men who discuss how they um, have felt like their voice has been erased, as you said. Um, and sometimes when I talk to them about it, I ask them, you know, what is the, what aspect are you most upset about? Is it the fact that there was an abortion uh, or was it an issue with the relationship um, that they, uh, you know, maybe could not have gotten over uh, or an issue with communication? And I think that 
uh, it's easy to kind of point fingers at the abortion or at the the partner who made a decision uh, when there's actually something more deep seated that people just haven't had a chance to process. Mm. I I think that's such a like. I think that's such a powerful and compassionate thing to hear because I think so often in these conversations, people feel pitted against each other um, and feel like it's really hard to to find kind of that common ground where everybody's voice is heard, where everybody feels loved, respected and cared about. In Japan, there was a law passed recently requiring women to get the signature of their male partner before gaining access to abortion pills or medical abortion. What are men's rights and roles when it comes to reproductive freedom? Yeah, so in um, in the United States currently, uh, and hopefully this will continue, um, there's a Supreme Court president called Planned Parenthood versus Casey um, that um, protects um, a woman's right to uh, have an abortion without requiring any spousal consent. So in the United States, um, you know, that is protected uh, and a doctor does not have to, uh, you know, seek spousal consent. Um, and that's um, something that I very much support, um, again, with the understanding that this is a pregnancy that happens in a woman's body. Um, so in terms of men's rights, uh, you know, men have the right to, uh, you know, just discuss the decision with their partner, uh, but that's about it. I, I appreciate that response so much. And it almost reminds me of like Chris Rock has a joke and it might seem like slightly insensitive at this point, but it kind of is this joke where he says you get to have two responses if someone tells you they're, they're pregnant, which is one like congratulations and the other like what do you want to do about that? Um, but those those are, you know, you gotta you've gotta respect the person who is who is pregnant. Um, and I find that that law to be kind of terrifying, right? Like the idea that, you know, I, I guess it kind of feels like a dystopian scene from the hands handmaid's tale. There's these references to like you know, early on in kind of the, the crusade against women's reproductive rights. According to Margaret Atwood, one of the first steps was, was you know, women having to have their husband's permission to access con- contraceptive. Um, and that's happening right now in 2022 in, in Japan. You can't talk about abortion without talking about sexual assault and sexual violence. Both sexual assault and sexual violence are often framed as the issues of women and girls, even though we know many men are sexually assaulted and many boys are sexually assaulted. How can men take greater responsibility for addressing and preventing sexual assault and sexual violence? Yeah, that's a very, uh, it's a very good question, very complex. Um, but it has to do with destigmatizing um, the forums in which we talk about um, sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, you know, do we allow, do we create spaces where men can talk about uh, these issues? And actually, it applies to abortion as well. Uh, do we create spaces where men can talk about, uh, you know, how they feel about, um, you know, being partner to an abortion or being a uh, perpetrator uh, who wants to, uh, you know, uh, enact behavior change, right? Uh, how are we doing that? Um, right now, we currently talk about bystander interventions where, uh, you know, if you see something, say something. Um, but that's only one um, method of addressing sexual assault, sexual violence. Um, really, one of the best ways uh, would be through uh, kind of early discussions uh, about gender equity and teaching people about uh, the need to respect um, you know, everyone so that begins really, really early. I I think like that's something that so many adults I, I feel like there's like this awkwardness around like what is the right age to start talking to your kids about where babies come from? What is the right age to start talking to your kids about consent? And how to do that in a developmentally appropriate way, right? Because where babies come from is complicated and there's lots of ways that people can have babies and find a a baby in their life. Um, And so, you know, I think, you know, talking about where babies come from, talking about consent, that's, that's rough, right? At a developmentally appropriate, in a developmentally appropriate way. Talking about sexual assault with kids um, feels like you could almost be harming or traumatizing them. So what is the way if we want to say, hey, we want young boys to know that, 
you know, that they're they're responsible for how they treat other people, that the the that girls deserve bodily autonomy and deserve to be respected and treated well. Um, what are what are the ways that we send that message to young men um, effectively and appropriately? I think it's all about framing, uh, you know, framing how you want to be treated yourself and how you want to treat others. Um, and then also it's, uh, you know, early on combating the toxic masculinity that exists uh, in our society and really pushing uh, this idea that it's a, uh, um, that you know, what we should be doing here is protecting, is caring, um, and that's okay. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, we have a caller on the line, and I want to give a huge shout out to Ben, our engineer today. This is your first day, kind of, kind of driving the ship or steering the ship, which is pretty complicated. So you're gonna patch this person through, and I don't necessarily know their name. So, hi, caller. How are you? Oh, greetings. Yeah, I'm uh, David. I'm out in California, listening online. Oh, uh, thanks for listening from California. You're you're, you know, you're in the same state as as our guest today. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, hi, doctor. Yeah, I was just going to raise the issue. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen. Uh, Michael Moore did a movie called Sicko, Sick, Co- uh, Sick Incorporated, basically. <laughs> and in it, he describes how. Uh, the anti-abortion movement was put together by Richard Nixon when he was trapped by uh, Watergate, and that he basically is, uh, in the Watergate tapes, there's a conversation between John Ehrlichman and Richard Nixon about how to rip apart the uh, Hippocratic Oath so that they can create HMOs, but in doing so, they want to make an alliance with the anti-abortion movement because they become this Taliban. Uh, they needed a Taliban to protect Richard Nixon against impeachment. And so dirty money gets uh, developed uh, toward uh, developing the uh, pro-life uh, movement. And you can see you know, in the early 1970s, all of a sudden there's this flood of money that comes in and, and uh, the pro-lifers come in like that. And, uh, and it was also very obvious that they were pitting men against women. Mm. And and uh, so the idea that uh, an alliance between men to help protect uh, women's uh, bodily autonomy, I mean, that was huge in the early 70s. Nobody wanted to, I mean, there, the zero population growth movement was going strong. And, you know, nobody wanted to overpopulate the earth so that we'd, you know, have to have some 1984-ish world. So there was a lot of protection and support for abortions back then. But this anti-abortion movement was funded by, uh, you know, backers of criminals like Richard Nixon. And uh, you can still see it in uh, what's called the um, uh, Council for National, um, uh, oh, good grief, what's the name of it? Uh, National Progress, I believe it is. The Council and, for uh, National Progress. Oh, hey, David, you're dropping all kinds of gems, and I am absolutely going to rewatch Sicko because I forgot that part of the movie. Um, what I really remember about that movie was somebody stitching up their own hand. Um, but I'm like this this information about about Nixon and abortion and kind of how it how it's been used politically by men is is fascinating. David, is there something you wanted to ask our caller or any information you wanted to give the folks listening to WORT before before you jump off? Well, I guess just, uh, you know, if he's familiar, or excuse me, I, I said that with name wrong. It was Council for National Policy. Okay. Council for National Policy. It, I, I first learned about it with uh, Ginny uh, Thomas. Uh, that's, you know, the, uh, but uh, to ask your guest a question about it, if, if he's familiar, I don't know if he went to med school at the time uh, when um, uh, the Hippocratic Oath was being ripped apart and the rise of HMOs. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, corporations could decide who got... Uh, in the original Hippocratic Oath, it, it basically says that if a patient comes to you uh, seeking aid, you're supposed to treat them first rather than asking for money. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess I do. I want to ask you as as a, a, a practicing, you know, doctor, as an OBGYN, um, yeah, how do you how do you respond to our caller? How do you respond to David? Yeah, I mean, there's 
lots of aspects to cover here. I mean, number one, uh, from a Hippocratic Oath standpoint and my job as a physician, uh, when a patient does come to me uh, in an emergency situation, uh, which, as as happens in obstetrics, uh, we are required to take care of them. Um, and that's that's uh, independent of their insurance status, and that's under a, um, a, uh, a rule called EMTALA. Um, which is an emergency medical uh, emergency medical tra- uh, treatment um, type of act. So, um, you know, that's certainly something that we do abide by for sure. Um, I am very much um, concerned and always surprised by how much uh, you know money is funneled into uh, anti-abortion campaigns. Uh, throughout my training uh, and throughout my work, I've always been countered, uh, you know, these groups and, uh, you know, at our conferences, um, we are often, um, you know, uh, you know, visually assaulted by uh, people who put, uh, you know, billboards up. Um, so there, there seems to be uh, a, a large contingent supporting this, uh, this effort. Yeah, I think moving into, you know, the the second half of this conversation, and if you're just joining us, you're just jumping into your car, you're just sitting down for lunch, you're just turning on your computer out in California. Thank you so much for calling and and for your wonderful question and remarks, David. Um, I just want you to know that you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. It's Tuesday, although it really feels like Monday. It's definitely Tuesday. Um... And today we're talking about men's role in, in advocating for reproductive justice with Dr. Brian Wynn, founder of Expanding Male Engagement in Reproductive and Gender Equity, also known as the Emerge Lab. We're going to start talking a little bit about contraceptive. Um, and so I had you know, just a few questions for you that I think are specific to some of the work that you do. How can men take responsibility for preventing unwanted pregnancy in the absence of women's rights? Uh, it's a great question, uh, and I think that number one, um, you know, it's it's a nice bridge into my uh, most exciting work, which is male contraception. So um, I work with a small group of federally funded investigators from the National Institutes of Child and Health and Human Development um, on a male contraceptive gel. It's a hormonal gel um, that men apply to their shoulders every single day, and it drops their sperm count. It suppresses the signals uh, that produce sperm. Uh, and it's able to get their sperm counts down to zero uh, while maintaining all other, uh, you know, male features. So, you know, muscle mass stays the same, your libido stays the same. Um, and we are, uh, you know, just finishing up recruiting um, probably in the next month, um, at which point we'll follow these couples up for about a year. Uh, and then they will not be using any other method of contraception. Um, in the meantime, we'll be relying solely on the gel. Um and it's a phase 2B, so we're very excited about it. Brian, I am already jealous and annoyed by your description of this contraceptive. Are you telling me that men's contraceptive now includes like a moisturizer? Like they get like a deep tissue massage and that's how they're going to prevent unwanted pregnancy? What is, what's up with this gel? Tell me more. Yeah. Um, and people always ask, right, how come there isn't a pill yet, right? And actually... Um, you know, one of the reasons why we had to do a gel is because uh, the the, uh, the the liver uh, in men actually processes testosterone quite quickly, uh, and so using a gel method uh, ended up being the uh, you know best method of daily delivery um, that maintained the right levels of testosterone. Um, so it wasn't uh, you know that we weren't thinking that women would like a moisturizing uh, you know topical gel, but uh, it was more of a technical. Um, coincidence. All right. I guess if it's bec- if it's for science, if it's because of science, then fine. I'm going to accept that. That I guess men are going to get a shoulder massage in order to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Um, what is the most popular con- contraceptives for men right now? And what about emergency contraceptive? Yeah. Um, so I mean, there are a couple answers for that too. Number one, um, the most popular contraceptive for men. Um, is whatever their partner's using. Um, you know, what we find is that couples who, you know, agree on a method of contraception together are more likely to use um, that method of contraception both consistently and for a long period of time. And so, uh, you know, if it works for both of them, then that that's good. So um, you just you know, said the most comfortable contraceptive for men 
is when they're not using contraceptive, their partner is. Not necessarily because okay. the the guys who I talked to in the in the trials, right? Part of the reason why they're joining the trials is because they've seen um, you know, a complication that their partner has experienced, uh, or they uh, you know, maybe don't want uh or they want to do a you know, a hormone free trial uh with their female partner. And so they'll try other things, right? They'll do condoms or uh as of late, there's been an uptick in interest in vasectomy. Um, but I don't want to make any like broad generalizations about what is the most popular, um, because ultimately, um, it's what works for the couple. Um, yeah. Are there certain reproductive, like certain contraceptive approaches or, um, prevention to reproductive approaches that are more effective for men? So, you know, we're talking everything from condoms to pull out method to, you know, what, what are two vasectomy? What are the things that work the best? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you're, I mean, as you said, right, there's only those three options that men currently have. Um, and vasectomy is the most effective method, and actually it's more effective than even uh, all female methods. Um, so even if, so if you take a woman who gets her tubes tied versus a man who gets his tube tied, um, the, the vasectomy is actually more effective, um, more cost-effective as well and safer. So whenever I have couples or even female patients who are considering tubal ligation, I always ask, uh, well, what about your male partner? Um, has he considered getting his tubes tied? Um, so I do recommend that highly. Um, there are, uh, you know, individuals who always say, oh, well, is it going to affect my libido? Is it going to affect the way I ejaculate? Uh, it has no impact on that. And what's really cool is that we've also seen studies where um, in, where uh, we'll survey individuals who've had uh, a vasectomy, uh, you know, before and after. What we find is that their sexual frequency and satisfaction actually increases uh, after a vasectomy for having the, uh, you know, comfort of knowing that they're not going to cause a pregnancy. I think that there's, you know, because you're talking about such a sensitive area of the body, um, folks worry about pain and discomfort related to vasectomy. But I think also pain and discomfort, you know, the, the comfort of men and the sexual pleasure of men is prioritized. Um, and so you hear a lot of folks say, like, I don't like condoms because they they change my sexual experience. Right. Um, there there is this kind of perception that men are not willing to be uncomfortable to prevent pregnancy or to prioritize the comfort and safety of their partners. Um, and that seems to be a very real part of this conversation. Uh, you know, what is a, a loving and healthy relationship is one thing, but when you're talking about people's rights and freedom, we have to admit that we live in a really misogynistic society. If you are in Dane County right now, which is where I am broadcasting this show from, um, Dane County has an average of seven homicides a year. Of those seven homicides a year, about half will be domestic violence. The most likely person to kill you in this community is your boyfriend or your husband. Um, so in a, in a society where violence, you know, from male partners against female partners is one of the most prevalent kinds of violence. It's the number one phone call to police is domestic violence in our community. Um, we, we have to talk about you know, both the power that that men have, you know, and and the the authority that men have over the lives of women, um, but also the, the real terror that many women face um, around around men. And so thinking about contraceptive and thinking about, you know, what it looks like to ask men to be uncomfortable, what it looks like to have men be surgically sterilized. Um, how, how easy is it to talk to men about, you know, wearing a condom, about engaging in contraceptive, about prioritizing the health and safety of their partner? And what does it look like to to shift the conversation so that more men are engaged in, in those conversations and are being considerate of the health and safety of partners who can become pregnant? Yeah, I mean, there's two different populations here that we're talking about. There's the men who are inclined to violence and the men who are not. And uh, when we're talking about the men who are inclined to violence and the um, you know perpetrators of violence and partner violence, sexual violence, uh, there are often deeper uh, intersectional issues that have to be discussed regarding you know uh, you know poverty, jobs, um, the carceral system, and so forth. Uh, but kind of narrow, going back to your original question um, about um, 
you know, how do we, uh, you know, address men's willingness to engage? Um, it has to do with what narratives we allow in society, right? Um, I think that you uh, mentioned earlier, you know, oh, men have feel some feelings about this being a sensitive area or, uh, you know, men's comfort, right? But why don't we ever think about that with women, right? Uh, you know, are women's pelvic exams not as sensitive, uh, just as in need of, uh, you know, care, comfort, respect? Um, so we almost give men a pass by acknowledging uh, that, uh, you know, we sh maybe we shouldn't uh, force them to get a vasectomy. Um, meanwhile, we are more willing to, uh, you know, do that to women. We're more willing to, um, you know, provide the insurance coverage that would allow women to get surgeries, whereas we don't provide that insurance coverage for men. Uh, you know, what does that say from a structural level? So ultimately, um, one of the most interesting things I, f I found in the content of the trials is that one of the main, like one of the greatest predictors of uh, men's willingness to try male contraception um, is what they think their partner would think about them. Um, and that's kind of nice because what it says is that, um, you know, men are willing to do things uh, if it satisfies their female partner. And I think that's an important thing to, uh, to, to recognize from a female empowerment standpoint that um, we're making these assumptions here that men wouldn't try, but have you asked? Mm. Thank you so much for saying that. And I appreciate like the, the kind of positive spin that we got to um, in terms of saying, you know, there, there are a lot of men who are willing to do things for, for the person that they love or care about, the person they're partnered with, and simultaneously. We can't have a conversation about reproductive rights um, without talking about domestic violence, without talking about sexual assault, about talking about the very the very real consequences of, of misogyny in our society and sexism in our society. Why are women so much more likely to take responsibility for contraception or birth control, Dr. Wynn? than men, even though the side effects are often greater for women. Yeah, I mean, there, there's the technological argument, right? Um, we only have, you know, so many methods for men currently. Um, and so because of that, the default uh, from an effectiveness standpoint uh, is to use a female method. Um, however, um, kind of addressing the uh, response I had earlier is that we've kind of allowed this narrative to persist, right? Um, for women who um, you know are using hormones and don't want to use hormones, um, you know there are individuals who are more likely to accept that as part of the oh well, I guess I just have to do this right, um, but things can be different right. Uh, let's say if you came to my office and we had a uh, you know a couples contraceptive counseling session, um, you know I would raise questions about uh, you know what is the man doing uh, as part of that relationship to alleviate her burden um, and just to better understand it. And sometimes what I find is that just being able to uh, just have someone understand your situation better can actually make um, a couple's experience better as well. Oh, absolutely. What are the barriers to researching and popularizing male hormonal contraceptive? So I think, you know, it's hard for me to imagine in your work what it looks like for people to either embrace or reject what it is you're trying to do. So what what are some of the things that that make this research hard? What what are some of the things that get in the way? And I know you've talked a lot about kind of the narratives we promote as as a society. Um, but in popular popularizing male hormonal contraceptive, um, what what is it that that stops us from being able to do that? It's always that knee jerk reaction of, oh, men won't use it. Um, or women won't trust men. Um, and it comes down Ooh. again to those narratives, right? Those boxes that we place people in um, that we don't allow people to advance further um, than what our, you know, our mental picture of what a man is or what a woman is. Um, Dr. Wen, so we I break that. Yeah, yeah, I want to touch on a little bit of what you're saying about women won't mm -hmm. won't trust men. Have you heard mm -hmm. of stealthing? Have you heard of stealthing at all? I have. I have. Okay. So for folks who don't know, if you're listening out there and you haven't heard of stealthing, stealthing is when um, a person, you know, says that they are using a condom during intercourse and removes the condom without informing their partner um, and then ejaculates into their partner's body um, without consent. 
that that is something that has come up, you know, recently in Wisconsin, it came up because, uh, you know, when one of our, our state senators wanted to make it illegal um, or wanted to make it sexual assault. And, and she failed to do that. It is still perfectly legal to remove a condom without telling your partner that you've done so in the state of Wisconsin. Um, you know, I, I think. When you hear those kinds of things, it makes it hard for, I think, women, especially women existing in a country where their reproductive rights are compromised or or criminalized, to rely on men um, to use contraceptive so that they can avoid experiencing a pregnancy in their bodies. Uh, can you talk can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Wen, about, you know, why women should and can trust men um, to engage responsibly with contraceptive? Right, and it's a it's a great thing you brought up because it's a it's a case that gets brought up uh, a lot, whereby you know individuals have experiences where they shouldn't trust their partner, and that applies with both men and women. Uh, if you ask men, you hear stories about uh, you know their partners not using their pills consistently or not telling them, um, and that kind of thing. Not to say that uh, you know they're of the same uh, you know magnitude, but the point is that. Uh, individuals need methods for themselves to use as they see fit, right? So, um, you know, any individual, any partner uh, should have the agency uh, to use contraception as they as they desire and not necessarily have to rely on another person. Ideally, what we'd see is that you would use dual partner contraception, right? So when both partners are using their own method of contraception and then there's no blame game uh, at all. And that's kind of the ideal situation here. Wow. I'm like, I think that's, I think so many people have gotten so used to like it being one person versus, you know, and the idea of both people engaging proactively in preventing unwanted pregnancy. Um, I think that's, that, that's kind of revolutionary. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for, for bringing that to the show. Um, we have a question from a, a listener and it's a pretty genuine question. I think the question is for both of us because it's really about how we've been having this conversation. This is an honest question throughout the show. Men have been referred to as men, but women have sometimes been referred to with broader terms related to their reproductive capacity, people who can become pregnant, et cetera. In your work, Dr. Wen, why are these terms, these inclusive terms used for women or for people who can become pregnant and not for men? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, from a reproductive capacity standpoint, um, we know that individuals uh, who have a uterus, um, you know, can get pregnant, but that only applies to a certain point, like prior to uh, prior to menopause. Uh, and so, you know, it makes sense to use a lot of that more uh, specific terminology to address reproductive potential, uh, whereas for, you know, men, they continue to produce sperm, um, you know, throughout their entire life. And so that um, that reproductive potential is there. Uh, however, I will say that um, I don't want to perpetuate some kind of double standard here. Uh, and the reason why I actually do use the word men as opposed to individuals who create sperm is that um, my use of the word men captures the social um, um, aspects of, uh, of, of, pay, of, you know, men, privilege, patriarchy, all that together. And so when I'm addressing, um, you know, what men need to do, um, or how we need to change men, uh, it is really aimed not only at the male individual, but, uh, you know, the masculinity that, uh, is entailed by the work. I so appreciate that answer. And I'll just say in writing questions for this, I thought a lot about M. Adams, who said to me once, you can't use gender neutral language in a sexist society. Um, and so I think it's really important to use the word women um, as we as we talk about reproductive rights. I also think that not all people who have uteruses identify as women, not all people who can experience pregnancy identify as women. And I think we want this conversation to be as inclusive of our trans siblings who have all kinds of experiences as possible. And I'm sure I'll look back at this conversation years from now and wish I had used different language um, and been more inclusive and intentional about the way I talk about men, because there are men who experience pregnancy, right? Trans men. Um, and so I I really appreciate that question. And thank you so much for, for calling. And if you are out there listening and you want to join the conversation, we've got a few minutes left and the number is 608 
2001 extension 9. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Maldro. And today we're talking about men's roles in advocating for reproductive justice with Dr. Brian Wen. Um, we have just a little bit of time left, so I want to talk about about your organization pretty specifically. The Emerge Labs logo is a seahorse. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the seahorse is a really cool animal. It's one of the only animals where the uh, the male um, animal actually gets pregnant. Uh, it bears the, uh, the little baby seahorses, uh, and that's why the logo has a little baby seahorse too. Um, and I think that's actually really insightful in the sense that um, there is a there's a natural precedent here for uh, the male partner to be present um, and to take on responsibilities that are traditionally female. Not to say that we are seahorses, but we do have something we can learn from them um, in terms of uh, you know responsibility. I I've heard you know kind of the pro life movement say abortion lets men off the hook. Right. It, it, it stops men from taking responsibility for pregnancy. It forces women to shoulder the burden of something that's often painful and expensive. Um, how do you how do you respond to that, to the idea that abortion is, is letting men off the hook? You know, um, I don't I don't know if abortion always uh, lets men off the hook, because in the decision to have the abortion, um, for most men, there is some degree of attachment, whether it, that's to the pregnancy or the relationship. Um, it's a little bit, it, you know, can be either one. Uh, so I wouldn't say that it is, um, you know, letting men off the off the hook. Uh, I think that's it's easy to say that if we're thinking that it's only a financial uh, transaction that's going on, but I think it's a little deeper than that. Mm, thank you for speaking to that. Your research includes men's experiences of unintended pregnancy and abortion. What are some of the stories you've heard? Um, you know, there, there really are so many, um, and it speaks to the fact that men can have these, uh, you know, rich experiences of, uh, you know, reproduction and it's not, uh, you know, as simple as, um, you know, people might characterize men to be, um, they have an emotional life, um, and they have a desire to really discuss this. Um, and I, I would guess that if I had to summarize, um, the work, I would say that most men who I've talked to have not had a chance to really process and discuss um, their abortion experiences. Um, and oftentimes when they've talked to me, it's they'll, they'll tell me it's the first time that they had an opportunity to, and it uh, can be kind of fairly cathartic for them, even if they, you know, wanted to have the abortion, just to have an opportunity to, um, you know, talk about their feelings. Um, and I think that what that what that tells me is that as a society, we've really not created spaces to allow men to explore this inner life. Um, and that's an important thing for us to begin doing. I wanted to ask you as as a dad, Dr. Wynn, and I think like we we haven't gotten to have this conversation, but so often when I talk to folks, the identity of of mom comes up, right? Um, it comes up a lot more than the identity of of dad. And I think one of the things is that we that we don't talk about is the the divide of labor between moms and dads. So for you as a parent, as somebody who's navigating parenthood with a really adorable toddler right now, um, how how are you confronting kind of bringing your beliefs around equality, around gender justice into parenting? Um, really putting me on the spot on the spot there. Um, but it's it, I'm I'm very I'm very intentional. Uh, in what I do, I know um, when my uh, you know my, my wife is doing more uh, of the heavy lifting from a childcare standpoint, and I I see that I feel that, um, and I um, you know will have a direct conversation with her about how I can do better or things that I can uh, do to um, you know be a better dad. Um, Listen up, dads. I feel like that is yes. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I I think. It's one just to say, like, I notice that my partner is is doing more. I also I want to ask as an OBGYN, um, you know, that that field is not necessarily informed by feminism. The 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 father of gynecology um, is a, a person who's who's associated with torturing black women in barns. Um, and that is where so many of the practices used in gynecology come from and are used to this day. Um, 
what are you doing to kind of confront the sexism that informs your 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 field, both historically and now? Yes, it, it's a it's a great it's a great question, and I look at one of the best things I do is that I teach beyond the textbook, and I actually teach uh, based upon how my patients teach me. Um, you know, when we talk about pelvic exams and how to do a pelvic exam, there's a there's you know what you learn in the textbooks, and there's also uh, just asking the patient, right? When I, you know, how did you feel um, when uh, you know we approached you this way? Um, how are we how are we obtaining and receiving consent um, when we do these exams? Uh, these are all things that we learn from our patients, and that um, I would say is the the way that I am uh, you know changing how we teach the uh, in OBGYN, which is not to dictate um, how we do things from uh, you know the teachings of old white men, uh, but how do we um, exchange power um, and learn from our patients? Oh, I I think that that is such an encouraging thing to hear. And, you know, as somebody who has had three, three babies and really experienced, you know, the complexities of what it means to be young and black and and, you know, have, have be pregnant, have a kid in our in our world. Um, it's encouraging to hear somebody talk about listening to their patients and valuing the experience of their patients. I, I want to ask you, we've got about a minute left. What are things folks can do to get involved in the work you're doing? And when I say folks, what I mean is men. How can men get involved in this work? How can men stand up for the reproductive rights of all people? Um, what are you hoping more and more men are going to start doing? I really hope that men start talking about it more. Um, I don't necessarily care um, about what uh, you know they're, they're actually doing, uh, but it's having conversations, being open. Um, and I think that takes courage. Um, I think that earlier you mentioned that uh, you know men might you know be afraid of entering what's a woman's space, or they're afraid of saying the wrong thing, or um, you know being uh, considered feminine for uh, some of the choices they make. But uh, at the end of the day, realizing that uh, reproductive issues are an issues that affect all people, and that all people should be engaged in these conversations will really decrease some of the stigma attached to it and normalize. Um, discussions about pregnancy, planning, unplanned pregnancy, um, and that just creates a, uh, a richer discussion. Oh, Dr. Brian, when I am a huge fan of yours, I was a fan of yours before you came on the air, and I'm an even bigger fan now. Thank you, everybody who tuned into WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. We'll see you next week on Tuesday, y'all. Six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard.